Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast, everybody. Uh, glad you're able to uh, join uh, me here for this, uh, I think, what's going to be a, a very productive and very helpful episode. Um, uh, and, and, and for those of you who know me, know that I am somewhat passionate about this issue. The issue that I would like to uh, discuss today is ecclesiology. Um, and uh, that is for those of you who are uh, just tuning in and getting interested in theology. Perhaps you're brand new to Christianity, or maybe you're not even a Christian. Ecclesiology is the Christian doctrine of the church. All right. Um, uh, the, the the word in the Greek for assembly is ecclesia, and so naturally our technical term for the theological uh, locus of the doctrine of the church is ecclesiology. Um, so here we are, and um, we're, we're going to talk about ecclesiology specifically as it re relates to um, a couple of different historical positions. Um, and uh, one of the one of the two of the positions really that we're going to look at are are uh, are found within uh, the Baptist tradition as a whole. Okay, um, and then uh, one of one of the other the, the other position we're going to look at is is really outside of, and I would even say to some extent, mutually exclusive of, uh, of Baptist, historical Baptist orthodoxy. So um, no matter where you cut the pie in, in the circle of, of Baptists throughout history, uh, that, that last position that we'll, that we'll look at is, is going to be outside of, of really historical Baptist orthodoxy. So um, the, two, the two positions that I would like to talk about that are both found in um, historical kind of Baptist theology. Uh, well, I say that one of the positions is is very very new. Uh, when I say it's historical, I only mean to say that it goes back to about the 19th century, uh, and and it's it really exists as a reaction to the downgrade controversy during that time. Um, and uh, the other the other position is 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 quite consistently represented in. Uh, the Baptist confessional literature, those documents that really uh, delineate and uh, and and really uh, distinguish Baptist theology from other uh, brands, I guess you could say, uh, or other theological traditions. So um, the, the first position, the one that I just mentioned that's rather young, is uh, what's called landmarkism. Uh, landmarkism uh, historically, I mean, at its genus in the 19th century, did put itself forth as kind of the historical Baptist position. I think as we look at it, uh, we'll, we'll come to understand that that's not the case. Now, just because it's not the historical Baptist position doesn't mean it's not true. So I don't want to be, I, I don't believe it is true, but I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me as saying, well, if it's not in the Baptist historical tradition, then therefore it's not true. That's not what I'm saying here. But I am pointing to the fact that it's not found in Baptist literature really prior to the 19th century. And I think that's a very important and noteworthy uh, observation. Um, so what is landmarkism? Uh, I, I, I like to think of landmarkism, and by no means am I an expert. Uh, I am not a 
doctor in terms of this 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 particular uh, doctrine of ecclesiology um so uh, you'd you would have to read uh men like uh William Downing or uh, maybe just JC Settlemyer so those are some guys who are contemporary who have uh written and supported um landmarking uh, ecclesiology to one extent or another. Okay, so I'm not. I'm not. I, I also don't want to be misunderstood as putting everyone in the same boat. There is disagreement within landmarkism, and that's what I'm about to bring up. In fact, is there that there is kind of a, a hardcore landmarkism. Uh, you'll you'll hear it called, uh, you know, chain link successionism. Uh, you, everyone. Many people have probably heard of the the idea of Baptist church perpetuity. Um, in landmarkism, in this hard kind of landmarkism, that perpetuity is construed in terms of like a chain link succession of churches and theological traditions, namely baptism and the mode of baptism and the subject of baptism, etc. Certain groups being found in common in those uh, few things. Um, traced throughout history all the way back to the first century, uh, the, the apostolic church. Um, and, and they'll say, look, we can find ourselves in, uh, the Waldenses. We can find ourselves in the Albigenses. We can find ourselves in the Policians. We can find ourselves in the Donatists. We can find ourselves in the Novations. And then we can, we can find ourselves all the way going all the way back to like the apostle Paul, right? Um, or John the Baptist even. And, um, uh, that, that, that is, I don't even know if that, uh, brand of landmarkism is alive today. Uh, the only literature that I've read that actually tries to support it would be like D.A. Carroll's Trail of Blood. Um, and, and that's really, he draws like a, a map and everything. There's this big graphic and it was, it was, this was written in like the late 1800s. There's like this graph in there and everything trying to, you know, trace Baptist churches all the way back to uh, all the way back to the apostolic church. And, you know, you've got all these kind of uh, heterodox groups in there identified with Baptists, kind of like a, ooh, we don't. And, and I think that's kind of been seen for what it is over the years. And, and, and I'm I'm actually not familiar with anyone who still supports that. There there is uh, a softer landmarkism, which uh there's a lot of overlap in this softer brand of, uh, of landmarkism and my own position, uh, though I wouldn't identify myself as a landmarkian. Um, there is some overlap, especially in terms of sentiment and what's trying to be achieved in the, in the theology of it. Um, so the softer uh, landmarkists would not really go to pains trying to find, you know, some kind of, uh, visible representation on earth historically and extant literature and all of this in these groups or whatever, going all the way back to the apostle, to the apostle Paul or whatever, the apostolic church. Instead, they would just say, well, we know that Jesus told us that he would build his church. The gates of hell would never uh, prevail against it. And therefore there, there has to have been true churches at all times. It's not as if, you know, Roman Catholicism came on the scene in like the third century and eclipsed the true church of God. And there was no true church until boom, Luther comes on the scene. And now all of a sudden there's another true church again. 
Uh, and they're right in that. They're absolutely right in that. There, there has to have always been uh, true believers, and I would say true church churches in the world, uh, even under that dark cloud of what eventually became medieval and Renaissance Catholicism. Okay, so uh, Roman Catholicism. So, um, so I, I would agree with them on that. The, the, the difference here, and, and this actually isn't the key difference, but one of the differences here is that they would say, well, a Baptist church is the only true church. There is no other true church aside from that. And this is a pretty unqualified statement. So they wouldn't see, for, for, for example, like you have R.C. Sproul's church, St. Andrew's down in uh, Florida, uh, and they would say R.C. Sproul taught a lot of really good things. I'm sure there's a lot of good Christians that that congregate there, but that's not a church, right? That's not a church. They, so they they won't they won't qualify that language. They'll just say it's not a church. I, on the other hand, I I would tend to say that because I I believe that pedo baptism is a is an is a is an error, uh, and I think a pretty serious error in terms of in terms of uh, sacramentology or the doctrine of ordinances um i would say that that is a sick church on that point that church is not a healthy church it's nevertheless a church because what makes a church a church in, in terms of the efficient cause of it is word and spirit and so if you have true believers gathering together and hearing the word preached um you you have more or less a, a church there though it may be imperfectly constituted, right? And and to an extent, we're all imperfectly constituted. But what I mean by that is that there is a there is an error that has not been corrected and has not been repented from that continues to persist in that congregation, okay? Uh, namely, paedo-baptism. So I wouldn't anathematize them as a church, but I would say that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an unrepentant, it's an un, it's a church that is sick by virtue of its unrepentant sacramentology, uh, erroneous sacramentology. So, um, uh, landmarkism, on the other hand, even the soft version that I'm that I'm laying out for you now, um, would just say that's not a true church. The only true churches are Baptist churches, and there may be true Christians, you know, outside of Baptist churches, but the only true churches are Baptist churches. Because of this, because of that conviction, because of that commitment, they've had to say, well, because Baptist churches are the only true church, there, there is no, there is no, this idea of a universal church or there being one church or one bride or body of Christ is either non-existent or it's wholly eschatological in the sense that it's just in the future, uh, right? Like Hebrews 12 is only in the future. And, um, and, and this kind of the marriage supper of the lamb is only in the future. Uh, and there's only a sense in which we're the bride of Christ only in the future. There's, there's no one bride of Christ now. Okay. Um, now the other, the other implication of that. Okay. So, so you have a couple of things. First, the Baptist church is the only true church, according to landmarkism. And, and, and here I'm, I'm addressing soft landmarkism. Um, the Baptist church is the only true church, uh, or Baptist churches are the only true church. There is no universal church, and there can be Christians 
outside of the Baptist church, right? They'll, they will admit that, of course, there can be, like R.C. Sproul, for example, would be a Christian who is outside the Baptist church. So he, he's, he actually doesn't even belong to a church. He just is out there and uh, is, 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 is sustained by the grace of God. He's in error, and he may never be part of a church, but he will uh, still be saved, right? Now, what I want to do when I hear that is I want to walk this back to the doctrine of, of, of the atonement, all right? Assuming that my interlocutors or my friends with whom I disagree are Calvinists, I want to walk that back to something more fundamental in our soteriology, something before this doctrine of the church, before the doctrine, before we even get to the doctrine of ecclesiology. Look at the atonement, the nature of the atonement, and ask the question, who did Christ die for, and is that definite? Arminians, of course, would say, no, it's not definite. Christ died for everyone without exception, okay? And and then you have the notion of prevenient grace. Everyone's enabled to take advantage of this atoning work of Christ. They just need to choose to believe in Jesus or whatever. They all have the ability to do that. But my Calvinistic brethren, who also subscribe to landmarkianism, would say that there can be true Christians outside of the Baptist church, which, remember, they believe is the only true church, and there is no other sense of church, universal or otherwise, outside of the Baptist church. Okay, so then you ask the question, did Jesus die for his church, or did he die for his church plus some other people? And uh, I think I think what happens here is that you, you begin uh, essentially um, coming into confrontation with texts like Ephesians 5.25. And um, in Ephesians 5.25, Paul is on the subject of marriage. And he says, husbands, he gives a commandment to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ, what? Loved the church, definite article, ha ecclesia, loved the church and gave himself for her, okay? Um, and so the question I would want to ask is, does that passage um, support any any kind of doctrine of the atonement? It, it, after all, tells us that it tells us the object of Christ giving himself. When that kind of language is used in the scriptures, it's really referring to who Christ came for. Who did Christ descend out of heaven for? Who did Christ become incarnate for? Let's just boil it down to the big question. Who did Christ die for? Right? And when you read Ephesians 5.25, it's very clear about that. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Again, that's ha ecclesia. That's a definite article. Um, and it is um, ha ecclesion and gave himself um, for her. Uh, and for her is uh, who who pair or or on like on behalf of her um, so and then and then verse twenty six uh, and verse twenty seven ascribe teleological marks to Christ's works or or in other words it gives Christ's work and uh, the purpose for him giving himself for her it gives the purpose of that it gives the final cause if you will verse twenty six that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. 
Okay, and and so verse twenty seven looks off into the future, into the eschatological ecclesia, the glorious church. But right now, uh, we have a Lord who has, during the Passion, given Himself for His church, and and it's not as if He gave Himself for His church and then and then at some point in the future, just boom, there's going to be the universal church show up. You know, the one church of Christ, the one bride of Christ show up in the future uh, eschatologically because you have the uh, the uh, interposing verse between verse 25 and verse 27. That's verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her. When is he sanctifying and cleansing her? He's sanctifying and cleansing her right now, right? that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. And that happens right now. So the Christ died for his bride. He is currently sanctifying and cleansing her right now with water and the word that he might in the future present her, again, the same bride, to himself a glorious church. All right, And that refers to the consummation. Now, uh, one book that I really recommend that uh, you guys try to get a hold of, and and I'm actually not even sure where to give it, get it. Uh, P R P I R S Press. Let me let me look that up and just make sure that that still exists. Um, uh, P I R S Press. Um, Okay, I'm actually not finding it. Anyway, uh, let's just let's just do this. Uh, I'll just hold it up for you, and you guys can go search it out on the web yourselves. Um, I was given this copy, um, in particular, by a friend, uh, and uh, who holds the position that I'm now uh, talking about. Uh, very dear brother, we agree on like everything except for this. Um, we agree on most things. And uh, he gave this to me. This is a very, very helpful resource. This is authored by uh, William Downing. Uh, Dr. Bill Downing is in California. I believe he pastors a church in San Jose. And uh, he's been pastoring for a very long time. He wrote this book. It's, it's, it's brilliant. He's a brilliant mind. Very, very sharp. Um, uh, and, and there's some brilliant, brilliant things in there that is going to be very, very helpful. Um, but for example, and he does have some, some brief material on the concept of the universal church and he's, he's interacting with it by way of kind of refutation. Right. And, um, and one of the things that, uh, that he brings up is the future, uh, import of, uh, the bridal language, um, concerning the church. All right. So, uh, he says, he says this. Um, the church is presented in the New Testament under the figure of a bride. So see John 3, uh, Romans 7, Second uh, Corinthians 11, Revelation 19. It's all over the place, as he notes. It is common to hear or read of the church referred to as the bride of Christ, quote-unquote. This term appears nowhere in the scripture verbatim. It has been assumed from combining a number of similar texts. Because of this, some teach that Israel is the bride, while the church is the body of Christ, combining certain Old Testament scriptures with those of the New. 
Such thinking is a warning to those who would infer too much from the figurative language or typology. Okay, so he's actually pretty pretty right there. I mean, it would be crazy to 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 say something like that. That uh, and 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 I'll I'll kind of dig into that here in a little bit more here in a little bit uh, after I read this. He says there are great even insurmountable obstacles in the figurative language to make the New Testament Church the bride of Christ at this time. Okay, so. He obviously sees the Bride of Christ language as as being important for a future state of affairs, but not necessarily uh, a reality obtaining at present. He says some scripture refers believers as united to Christ as chaste virgins, i.e. doctrinal purity, uncorrupted by a false gospel or another Jesus. Other scriptures view the believer or church as already united to Christ in marriage or as one flesh with him. Another passage refers to believers being married to Christ already and raising up fruit from that relationship, a figure based on children as the fruit of a marriage relationship. Uh, yet other passages view the marriage as yet future. You can think of you know places Revelation 19, uh, Revelation 21, and the and the marriage feast, the, the this consummation feast uh, uh, between the bride and the lamb. Uh, a final scripture anticipates the presentation of the church to the Lord perfected and glorified at the consummation. You see that in Ephesians 5, uh, in verse 27 especially. Um, and then he says, Such shifting in figurative concepts should serve as a caution to anyone who dogmatically hold the church as the bride of Christ at this present time. And my question to that is, why? Why would those, why would those scriptures, just because they equivocate in, in terms of chronology, serve as a caution to us who want to dogmatically hold that the church is the bride of Christ as the language in Ephesians 5 necessitates. That would be my question. Why Why would we want to be cautious about that? Um, and the only, the only reason that I could think of that we'd want to be cautious about that is so that we could avoid any kind of uh, monolithic language with regard to ecclesiology uh, that would seem to lead someone to believe that there's, that there's only one church. All right. So the, the goal here is to get away from this one church concept in the present. There is no one church. There are just multiple churches scattered all over the globe. Um, he says it is best to consider the bride as the church in glory, the church in an eschatological sense, perfected, glorified, and ready to enter into eternal bliss with her Lord. I, I, I just can't get on board with that because of the language of Ephesians 5.25. It necessitates a present bride that, according to verse 26, Jesus is sanctifying and cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. The washing of water, uh, the washing of water by the word cannot refer to some only future eschatological state. The ministry of the word and the washing of the water, whether or not that refers to baptism or internal work of the spirit, regeneration, that's something that happens now, right, to Christ's church. So verse 26 absolutely necessitates that there be a present bride of Christ in some sense. Now, I would borrow the language of Beale and say that it's in the inaugural sense. This is the inaugural bride of Christ. Or we might be able to say, to, to go back to marriage categories, say, we are the bride of Christ, currently betrothed to the Lord Jesus, and in the future, eschatologically, we will experience the consummation, and that is the marriage feast, feast and things discussed in Revelation 19 and 21. So there's nothing, absolutely nothing in the text of Scripture that would caution us from using that kind of language in the present concerning the Church of Christ. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Ephesians 5.25, like if I preached Ephesians 
or Ephesians uh, 5, 25 through 27, it would be impossible for me to speak as if that bride was only in the future. Okay. So um, now one of the other things that, that I mentioned was, uh, uh, you know, D- Dr. Downing is ob- absolutely on point when he talks about, you know, people who, who take Israel to be the bride um, and the church to be the body. That's a ridiculous distinction on many levels. And, and, and uh, he obviously agrees with that. But one of the reasons it's a ridiculous, um, it's a ridiculous text is because of Hosea 2. And it's Hosea, or not a ridiculous text, I'm sorry. One of the reasons that distinction between Israel and the church, Israel the bride of God, the church as the body of Christ, is ridiculous. The reason that's ridiculous is because of Hosea 2. Hosea 2, however, also militates against Dr. Downing's view that the bride of Christ is eschatological only. Now, uh, because it links it links the bride of God, the bride of Christ, to the inauguration, actually, of the new covenant. It uses the new covenant language um, uh, in order to speak of the bride, all right? And um, so in, in Hosea 2, I'm not going to go through and exegete the whole thing, but roughly laid out, uh, it's it's divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 13 in Hosea 2 is a, a, basically an anathema and a threat of the corrupt, the corrupt bride, uh, the corrupt Israel. Um, and then in verse 14, there's a turning point, and, and that's all the way, that lasts all the way to the end of the chapter. Um, and there's a turning point where God says in verse 14, therefore, behold, I will allure her again. He's talking about the same bride that he was in verses one through 13. I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards. I will give her her vineyards from there and that valley of Accor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. Okay, so this this is the bride. And then you get and then you get down to verse 23 and something very peculiar happens. And that uh, peculiar, uh, that peculiarity circles around uh, the inclusion of Gentiles and the covenantal language. You are my people and they shall say, you are my God. That is uh, a, that is always seems to be a phrase that's associated with the looking forward to the, the inauguration, the establishment and the effects of the new covenant. Okay. Now, um, when the new covenant is made, that is like just to say when it is actually formally established in the blood of Christ, um, and, uh, it, it, it establishes, uh, the, the, I guess you could say the precedent or the foundation of the redemption of God's elect. That is, that is absolutely key in this context, Hosea 2.23. Because it says, then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on on her who had not obtained mercy. This isn't a different her. This is substantially the same bride. But what's happening here is there are there she is sown in the earth. The same bride, the nature of the bride that 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 true believers, God's people, God's church, we might say, is is going to come out of all nations. It's not just going to exist there in Israel. But for the most part, it's going to come out of all nations. Then I will say to those, he says, who were not my people. Notice he doesn't say to those who were not my bride, you are my bride. 
right? He's he's the people are included in the uh, in the um, general term of 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 the bride of the body, right? That's a general term, including that includes or comprehends particularity like individuals and individual local churches as well. So then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. Um, so, you know, the, like the more dispensational types would, uh, you know, want to say, well, Israel is a completely different people than the church. Um, you can't maintain that hard and fast separation between Israel and the church if you look at Hosea 2. And at the same time, you can't maintain that God's bride is eschatological only. You can maintain that the consummation of the marriage between Christ and his bride is future, which I think is absolutely unarguable. But you can't, you can't, I don't believe, maintain that the bride, in a general sense, is only future. There is a sense in which there's a bride of Christ now. And Hosea 2 makes that known. I think Ephesians 5 makes that absolutely inescapable. The other thing, and I think this is very, very important. When Jesus says, uh, I will build my church in Matthew 16, he says, I say to you that you are Peter, remember this is Peter, the context is Peter's confession. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Um, uh, what, what, what church is he talking about there? Um, go back to soft landmarkism. If you, if you say that the Baptist church is the only church and that there is no such thing as a universal church, but only local congregations, right? What, what does Matthew 16, 18 mean? Because local churches go in and out of existence all the time. And sometimes they're destroyed because of sin. Sometimes the sad reality is, is that Satan actually does prevail upon a local church. And they do go out of existence for, for grievous reasons, right? You can think of all the scandals and, and the splits and the doctrinal disagreement that have caused churches to explode and people react in a sinful way. And that reaction, that sinful reaction causes the church to dissolve. Right, this has happened time and time again. I'll give, I'll give probably the one of the best examples that I know that spans centuries. When William Bradford came to uh, North America, um, he was the founder and the governor of the Plymouth Plantation, which we know of as uh, the Pilgrim Plantation. We call them the Pilgrims. They were Puritans. They were separatist Puritans, uh, nonconformists, who uh, left England. And they went to um, Denmark for a time, or Holland, and they were there for, I believe it was like 13 to 15 years, something like that. And then they finally leave there, they get on their ship, and they go to the United States, or the, to North America, what was then North America, colonial North America. Um, he brings with him William Brewster, who would serve as the faithful pastor of the church there in Plymouth Plantation. And when I say church, I do not mean a building with a steeple. I mean like a log cabin. And uh, that congregation, in terms of its, you know, it, its I guess you could say um, uh, 
social status continues to exist today. Uh, there is a congregation in the Northeast. It's in Plymouth. Um, it's in what is now Plymouth. Uh, it's right just at the at the tip top of what would have been the main drag there in Plymouth Plantation, which was just a dirt road at the time. Now it's a, a, a paved road that goes about from where that church is down to the toward the ocean, toward Plymouth Rock and all that. And when you're when you're up there, you're like, this is beautiful. You got the cemetery right off to, uh, you know, if you're looking at the front of the church, it's right off to the right. And it's up on this uh, hill, very northeastern looking hill. Uh, and up there is the remains of Brewster and, and Bradford and some others who were around during that time in the 17th century. Um, and this is early to mid 17th century, by the way. This is this is very long ago. And I'll never forget that while I stood in front of that church building um, and looked up the hill to that cemetery, in the corner of my eye was a gay pride flag flying off the side of the church building that belongs to what was the congregation of William Brewster and William Bradford, etc. All right, but very different there's a very different circumstance right and that is that that church is no longer a true church they have apostatized they do not preach the gospel um they are all kinds of liberal um and and left and and uh, in rebellion against god in, in many many different ways though i'm sure they would say they love god to the uttermost um but that's an example of how a a a church can go out of existence all right and, uh, and this happens all the time. This happens with faithful Baptist churches. Oops, you have lost. There we go. Okay. Hopefully I wasn't off for very long. Um, that happens all the time. It happens to faithful Baptist churches. It happens. Um, it, 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 uh, it happens. And that's the sad reality of it. So um, if, that, if the local church is the only church that exists, um, and local churches are prevailed upon by sin all the time. Well, then, what are what church is Jesus talking about? Uh, what what church is Jesus talking about in Matthew sixteen, eighteen? Um, is he talking about his one church? I mean, it is in the singular, so you would think that you would just say, you know, taking the the scriptures at face value, that that's Christ's one church, and then that, that in some sense that's gen any time a, a word is used in uh, uh, the fashion of like an integer of, of one, it's it's a general term, right? It's not particularized. Uh, Jesus says, I'll build my church. It's a particular church. It's a particular assembly. It's one assembly that he will build. He has to be talking not about local churches because local churches go in and out of existence all the time. They fail. They're prevailed upon by sin. Sometimes they go out of existence because they've slipped into a, a uh, kind of a, uh, a heretical position and God judges them and takes them out of the world, you know, whatever. Um, the reality is, is that local churches go out of existence, but Jesus said his church will never go out of existence. So who's he talking about? So, you know, if, if you take uh, my church, for example, we are one local church. If God forbid we ever had to go out of existence, if we ever had to close our doors for whatever reason, um, would that mean that hell has prevailed over Christ's church. And I would say, no, it does not mean that. Because there's a distinction between the one church of Christ 
and the individual churches, the particular churches, the local churches in which it instantiates in this life. Um, this is this is now to kind of bring this back to a, um, a sort of uh, discussion on historical Baptist orthodoxy. How I just articulated that is quite normative in Baptist literature prior to the 19th century. Um, in the 19th century is when landmarkism really appears. Uh, you have uh, Graves and uh, and some others that 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 really pioneered, kind of engineered that position in the 19th century. Before that, if you look at the Baptist the 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 Baptist literature, especially the confessional literature, what you find is is that there's a confession of the universal church. This is the case with the, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 26, verse one, or, uh, article 1. And let me just make sure. just want to double check and make sure that uh, I'm right on the sourcing there. Um, the Second London, it's a 1689. Uh, the very first article uh, confesses the existence of a universal church. And, um, and I'll, I'll read it here for you if I can get it pulled up. Um, let's see. Yeah, it's chapter 26, article one, first paragraph. The Catholic or universal church, which with respect to the internal work of the spirit and truth of grace may be called invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Okay, so that's, that is... That's the as far as I'm concerned, I'm convinced that the Second London is is the gold standard of Baptist theology in terms of what Baptists have historically agreed the scriptures teach on those 32 points, that that is best articulated in the Second London. You're free to to deny that. You're free to say that that's not the case. Um, but I would just take you to some other sources. Uh, there is uh, another confession that is I don't have it. I thought I had it around. I don't. It must be uh, downstairs. Um, but this other confession that I'm speaking of, oh, it's in the it's in the car. It's in the car. Right home last night from prayer meeting. It's still in the car. This other confession is 1596, I believe. Uh, it also it's a Baptist confession. Uh, it also confesses the existence of a universal church. It construes it in terms of a spiritual kingdom. It's identified with the church of Christ in this world. Um, it's invisible, yet it exists in particular churches. Okay, so um, there's that. There's uh, Balthazar Hubmayer, who is an Anabaptist, born in the late 1400s, wrote in the early 1500s. You're talking about very early Reformational time period. Um confesses a universal church. <laughs> but none of the but the important distinction that's made among these these Baptists and even the Anabaptists that I just mentioned is that the the universal church is not a visible institution on earth right now. Okay? And that's what that's what the first article of chapter 26 of the 1689 is very clear about. In the very first clause, the Catholic or universal church may be called invisible, right? The Catholic or universal church, which may be called invisible, it's an intermediary clause, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ. They cite for their for their scriptural proofs 
Hebrews 12, 23, Colossians 1, 18, Ephesians 1, 10, 22, 23, Ephesians 5, 23, 27, 20, 30, and 32. Okay, so um, they understood that there was, in some sense, one bride of Christ right now. Um, it's not in the consummate sense, right? It's in the betrothal sense, the inaugural sense. Um, it's not been perfected. It's not been perfectly or completely sanctified and cleansed and presented to Christ. That happens in the future, but his bride is alive and well today, all right? And we must confess that. Otherwise, we run into all sorts of exegetical problems that we're going to have to dance around. We're either going to have to ignore them and not comment on them, or we're going to have to introduce some kind of innovative or novel interpretation of them. Uh, that Christians have never found before. And then in that case, you end up in the awkward situation of kind of proclaiming that we found it, 2,000 years of history, never found it, but we did. Uh, and that's kind of what happened with landmarkism in the 19th century. You know, that was not a position articulated prior to that point in any of the extant Baptist literature, which is a lot, right? Um, it kind of just originates there. I mean, even among the strictest Anabaptists, they still confess that there's a universal church. And you're talking about you're talking about separatists of the separatists right there. Um, even and then you look at the Pado Baptist Independents who are very separatistic and had a had almost an identical ecclesiology to Baptist to what we know as to and love as Baptist today, with the exception of infant baptism. Like but like John Owen, Goodwin, etc., Jonathan Edwards, all these guys were confessing the Savoy Declaration and they were independents and they still confessed a universal church. All right. But they confess the universal church in the sense of chapter 26, article one of the second London confession, uh, not a universal church in the sense of the visible institution that Rome makes it right. Rome makes the universal church a vis a present visible institution. And we can say as Baptists that there will be a present universal church institution, but that is going to be in glory, right? There's no way we can have that now. No way we can have that now. Rome tries to make that happen now. And that's, that's, that's on them. That's uh that's, that's one of the big errors in their, uh, ecclesiology, uh, Pado, uh, Presbyterian, reformed Presbyterians to some extent have a doctrine of a visible present universal church in the here and now. Um, and, uh, what that does is, of course, it it obligates local churches to governing bodies that aren't necessarily part of those local churches, right? And so that's not Baptistic. That's not that's not Baptist ecclesiology. It's not consistent independent ecclesiology. Um, and, and and so uh, we would obviously qualify as to what the Catholic Catholic just means one, by the way, what the Catholic or the universal church is or what it means. It's not a visible institution. Um, it's not a visible institution in this, in this life as Rome tries to make it, as some, uh, Pado-Baptists try to make it. Now, maybe a, a response to me at this point would be, yeah, but it's, a, it's the word Catholic or the word universal in terms of the universal church carries with it so much baggage that we just shouldn't use it anymore. I don't do theology that way. Um, and, and the reason I don't do theology that way is because I don't like to, um, seed ground to my theological opponents. 
And when we give up useful language just because they try to take it and use it for their own purposes or just because they are perverting it, that's a way of actually letting the enemy win. That's a way of actually ceding ground to the opponent. Uh, it's like, it would be like, uh, it would be like kind of um, separating yourself from the rainbow or or hating images of the rainbow because it's being used by homosexuals in a perverse way. And what you'd be doing is you'd be letting them define the terms and the meaning of the rainbow instead of standing strong in your Christian conviction that the rainbow is indeed a sign of a, a divine covenant, right? And so when I look at terms like Catholic or terms like universal, these are good words. These are words that should be used in a good way. And these are words that were once used in a positive, articulate, and specific, particular theological way. And I don't want to let them go just because we have some opponents that use them in a way that we disagree with. All right. So um, I, I'm going to just continue using the language of the Second London. Um, anyway, I, I hope this, this was, uh, that this was, again, this is just an explainer of my own position. I don't want to come off as being militant, as being saying, you know, you know, saying that 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 everybody who sees this has to change their minds. If you don't, you're all a bunch of heretics. That's not what I'm here to do. But I thought that this would be a, a good video to make that would disclose my heart and mind behind this topic so that if there were any questions as to what I believed on it, this video would hopefully answer them. And I kept it under an hour, which is uh which is just short of a miracle. I, I tell you what. So uh, God bless you guys. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.